this week. Gibson Brands files for bankruptcy. Community Health proposes a $3.1 billion exchange offer. Concordia proposes a recap deal. And iHeart files its Chapter 11 plan. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Nick Lichtenberg. And I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, our director of credit research, Mark Fisher, will sit down with senior reporter and fellow podcast host, Jim Holloway, to discuss the latest developments in U.S. onshore energy. It's Sunday, May 6th. The levy finally broke for the preferred guitar maker of Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page on Tuesday, when Gibson Brands filed for bankruptcy with a restructuring support agreement in hand, as well as a $135 million dip financing package backstopped by its consenting Firstly Noteholder Group, but open to all secured note holders, according to the debtor's financing motion. Under the terms of the RSA, the international consumer electronics business, Gibson Innovations, is to be wound down. The proposed restructuring would effectively hand over 100% of the reorganized equity to Gibson's senior secured notes. Just before the filing, the company disclosed it had been in active discussions regarding a sale of the unit on a standalone basis. But a communication breakdown occurred when international term loan lender GSO demanded prepayments in exchange for default waivers that would allow the avoidance of financial covenant defaults. The company also disclosed market feedback that its musical instruments business is viewed as, quote, strong and valuable. At the first day hearing on Wednesday, counsel for unsecured creditor Phillips argued against approval of the financing's roll-up feature. But Judge Christopher Sanchi ruled that the debtors had established their, quote, extraordinary case with respect to the self-effectuating refinancing mechanism feature and approved it. On Tuesday night, Community Health Systems proposed its long-anticipated tender offer for unsecured notes. The proposed transaction would offer new junior-priority lien notes in exchange for up to all of the acute care hospital owners' existing $3.1 billion of unsecured notes due 2019 and 2020 at a rate of 1 to 1. To the extent that holders of these notes do not participate, and as long as the aggregate amount of new notes does not exceed $3.1 billion, then holders of the company's 2022 unsecured notes could exchange at a rate of $1 million old bonds for $750,000 of new bonds. The new notes would mature in 2023 and 2024, beyond the company's current latest unsecured maturity. The exchange would be predicated on receiving tenders from at least 90% of the 2019 holders, and community said that 60% of 2019 holders have already agreed with a further 55% of 2020 holders. According to Franklin Resources' website, the mutual fund owned in excess of 60% of the 2019s and in excess of 50% of the 2020s as of the end of January. On community's conference call to discuss first quarter results this week, Management said it believes the exchange offers are, quote, going to be attractive to the 2019 holders and the 2020 holders. Concordia International released details of an executed support agreement with both its secured and unsecured creditors last Tuesday. The recapitalization transaction proposed in the agreement would be implemented through the CBCA proceedings in Canada, under which the company announced its intention to reorganize in October of last year. The agreement has support from over 70% of secured holders and almost 65% of unsecured holders. 
and it would reduce the company's outstanding debt by $2.4 billion. Existing secured debt would be exchanged into new cash, and new secured debt at a rate of 93.4% of the secured debt holders' claims. Unsecured note holders would receive 12% of the new common, and existing shareholders would retain less than 1% of the new equity. The remaining reorganized equity of 88% would go to parties contributing over $585 million of new capital that would be used in part to fund the $500 million cash payment to secured creditors. Concordia expects to complete the recapitalization by July 31st and has left open the possibility of effectuating the transaction under Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. Over the weekend, iHeart debtors filed their plan and disclosure statement in line with the previously released RSA that would hand $5.75 billion of new secured debt, 100% of iHeart's stake in Clear Channel Outdoor, and 94% of reorganized iHeart equity to senior creditors and lenders. Unsecured claims would receive $200 million of new secured debt and 5% of reorganized equity, and pre-petition iHeart equity owners would receive the remaining 1%. According to the disclosure statement, the plan is supported by 82% of term loan claims, 70% of the company's PGN bondholders, and 73% of unsecured debt claims. On Tuesday, iHeart filed an application to employ Lion Tree Advisors as a special financial advisor to render, quote, professional services solely in connection with a potential equity investment in the radio business of the debtors by any third party. The application mentions Liberty Media Group and an undisclosed interested third party that Lion Tree has, quote, worked with the debtors' senior management regarding. On the island of Puerto Rico, the PROMESA Oversight Board on Friday, April 27th, submitted to the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosselló fiscal 2019 revenue forecasts and revised budget timelines for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority and Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority. The revenue forecasts are consistent with those set out in the certified fiscal plans. For PREPA, the proposed budget revenue for fiscal 2019 is projected to be about $3.314 billion, largely made up of basic revenue of $1.116 billion and fuel adjustment and purchased power revenue of $1.1. $872 billion. For PRASA, the proposed budget revenue for fiscal 2019 is projected to be about $970 million. On Tuesday, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AFAF, posted a liquidity report for 15 select public corporations of the Commonwealth. According to this report, the Ports Authority, the Medical Services Administration, and the Integrated Transit Authority are projected to end the year with negative cash balances. On Friday, Assured Guarantee President and CEO Dominic Federico voiced optimism about recent developments in Puerto Rico's debt restructuring process, including the capacity to service debt in the Commonwealth's newly certified fiscal plan. Frederico said he was optimistic for several reasons, including because, quote, people are talking about credit. There is surplus, and it is, quote, understated, saying that the plan does not count Medicaid reimbursement from the federal government. Assured's $5.187 billion gross par exposure to Puerto Rico government credits as of the March 31 end of the first quarter of 2018 was up slightly, about $1 million dollars from $5.186 billion reported on December 31, 2017. Separately, Governor Rosselló accepted the resignation of his chief of staff. 
William Villafanye, and called on four other administration officials to resign. The move came after Justice Secretary Wanda Vasquez called for the special independent prosecutor to investigate former Judge Rafael Ramos signs and signaled that evidence compiled to date shows the five officials may also have committed crimes. Reorg also hosted its second quarter Puerto Rico update webinar on Thursday, and a recording is available to subscribers on Reorg's media page. Turning to Venezuela, Judge Leonard Stark in two oral orders stayed Crystal X-1 and Crystal X-2 until the court issues a decision in the case of Crystal X International Corp versus Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. The court noted that it anticipates a decision being issued on or around June 30th. The parties are expected to submit a joint status report within 14 days of the issuance of the opinion. The case, also called the Alter Ego litigation, was initiated in 2017 when Crystal X, looking to enforce on a $1.2 billion award against the Republic, filed a motion seeking to attach Petavesa property. Creditors have been monitoring the case because, if successful, it could open the door for other creditors to try and enforce their claims by attaching Petavesa property. A decision could also set an important precedent for similar situations. Other top red stories of the week were number one. Monotronics works with Latham on refi and firstly lenders organize with Jones Day, ahead of the company's October 2019 springing maturity. Number two, Sea Drills trustee disclosed that May 7th will be the subscription commencement date. Number three, Hovnanian skips payment on its affiliate-held 8% notes. And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thanks, Nick and Karen, and thanks even more for the shout-out to the great Jimmy Page, Invoked all sorts of wonderful memories of the 1970s, to which Led Zeppelin was a soundtrack for a lot of us growing up in the South, and I reckon all over the world. Because after all, the blues was just an old man on a porch until Zeppelin turned it into a hurricane, as probably best demonstrated by when the levee breaks. And let's also not forget that other great wielder of Gibson guitars, Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath, who bestowed upon us the heaviest riffs ever written, and he's also the reason I own three Gibson SG model guitars. Well, there's nothing to be paranoid about this week in the reorg world. Once again, it's dominated by earnings. On Monday, May 7th, there's a second-day hearing for Nine West and earnings from Northern Oil and Gas and Hertz, whose call is on Tuesday. Also on Tuesday, May 8th, a Senate committee hearing for Puerto Rico and a veritable flood of earnings. Valiant Pharmaceuticals, Sanchez Energy, Endo Pharmaceuticals, Foresight Energy, Denbury Resources, and Monotronics, which is a recent addition to reorg coverage. Wednesday, May 9th, the expiration of Rex Energy's most recent forbearance and earnings from Verso and Quorum Health. Thursday, May 10th, hearings for both Toys and Tops and quarterly results from Comstock, Ultra Petroleum, Avaya, and Unity. Friday, May 11th, the early tender deadline for Havnanian, a preliminary injunction hearing for First Energy, and a settlement objection in Zohar. So let me leave you with this. Matt Pike of the legendary stoner metal band Sleep also plays Gibsons. And how about some wisdom from Lynn Tilton's Twitter feed? This seems to be a new one. Truth is the warm blanket that fights the cold, the burst of strength at the last mile, and the mirror into which we reflect. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. And now we'll turn it back over to you, joined by Mark Fisher for our deep dive look at the U.S. onshore energy industry, including a look at recent results in a spate of new bondholder activism. 
Thanks, Nick. So I am here uh, once again with uh, Jim Holloway, who is now going to put his energy hat on and talk to us about the onshore energy industry. Um, not only are we going to talk about what's been going on, uh, you know, recently, an update on the uh, the quarter, but also there's been a large uh, level of activism in, in this space, too, which we're going to uh, touch on, too. So, Jim, you know, to start, let's talk about the uh, the recent earnings season. Uh, I want to discuss uh, some of the trends that we've seen. You know, it seems like companies in general have reported better results, uh, higher commodity prices, uh, continued production increases for the for the most part. Um, you know, any any trends though that you could talk to uh, at the regional level? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, the Permian Basin of West Texas remains a center of activity. The land rig count is 452 units at this point, as measured by Haker, Baker Hughes, and we're slowly creeping toward the peak we saw before the collapse when it was around 560. Those are all oil rigs. The Haynesville, which is gas for the most part, is around 42 rigs, which is down from 160 in 2011. The Eagle Ford is at 75, 67 oil rigs and eight gas rigs. That compares to 200. 40 at the peak, and the Williston, which is in the Bakken of North Dakota, is 56 rigs, all oil, around 180 at the peak. So you can see uh, the recovery is still being led by the Permian. Um, and overall, as I mentioned, about 80% of the U.S. land rig count is oil. And overall, what we're seeing is that companies that are more exposed to oil are the ones that are doing the best. The commodity price is higher, of course, and overall realizations are coming in pretty strong. Ones that are exposed to Louisiana light sweet are in the most advantageous position. It's trading at a premium to WTI. Um, and those reflect some of the uh, the people with access to that are some of the offshore people and also ones in South Texas like the Eagleford or other geographies with a more efficient pipe to the Gulf Coast refineries. Now, one consequence of the boom in the Permian is that the producers are fairly rapidly running into a transportation wall. There's just not enough pipeline to get the stuff to the Gulf Coast. There's the cactus, which goes into the Corpus Christi, the Michelin and the Bridge Tex, both of which go into Houston, and the Permian Express, which goes into the refineries in Nederland. That's around the, uh, the Beaumont area. But overall, there's just not enough pipe to get it there expeditiously. Some producers are loading it into rail cars and shipping it to Houston that way. And what the result of this has been is uh, increased differentials between the Permian production and WTI, which is the benchmark. And it's reached about the widest since August 2014. In late April, the discount to WTI for Midland crude being shipped to Cushing was around $9. And it's a discount of around $11 for Midland to Magellan East Houston and for Midland to Corpus Christi. The producers are doing the best they can, and in a lot of cases, an excellent job mitigating this. Pioneer Natural Resources, for instance, which is in the middle of divesting its non-permian assets to become a West Texas pure play, has been particularly scaled at this, um, also Apache. It's a combination of basis hedging, sales contracts, and firm transportation agreements. Um, broadly speaking, um, there's, there, there's more midstream being built, so eventually this will sort itself out, especially given the amount of capital being deployed into the Permian, but the condition looks like it's going to hold through at least 2019. So if you're looking at a Permian producer, this is something that needs to be taken into account. What they're getting is going to be WTI less something with whatever adjustments are needed for their hedging and other programs. Thanks, Jim. That's that's really interesting, uh, You know, especially uh, about the part about uh, the midstream and um, just 
lack of um, ability to to take uh, the energy um, out of the, the the region, and I think it talks to sort of a larger theme uh, that's out there on infrastructure or lack thereof in in the hot spots around the country. And the Permian, obviously, is one of those that 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 you mentioned. Which brings me to uh, the service providers, uh, another, another segment within the space that have really reported seems like pretty decent results uh, this quarter as well, driven by uh, both increased activity, but also better pricing. Um, And on that pricing, I just wanted to explore with you, have you seen this higher pricing show up in higher costs at the EMP companies? Well, there's certainly a good deal of discussion around inflation for services. And we are hearing that some of this started to show up in April and May of this year. The extent of it varies by the producer and how well they're able to negotiate with the service companies. Um, I think it's fair to say that by and large, the costs are remaining fairly well within the amounts that they're budgeting. 15% inflation at a number that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, That is, that's the amount that the EMPs are budging for. But again, it's going to vary by the actual service and by the producer and their ability to negotiate with the the service companies. Some numbers I've heard are are 3% to 5% inflation. Those are coming from some contacts in the oil field. Interestingly enough, California Resources noted that service costs were lower in the first quarter and attributed this to intense competition among the service companies. And there doesn't seem to be much fretting about it in the Bakken either. Um, On the other hand, Pioneer, which is in the Permian, has said that it could possibly increase its CapEx for this year to compensate for higher service costs. Their CapEx is budgeted at $2.9 billion right now. Um, All this said, one of the constant things you heard during the downturn was the many and various ways in which E&Ps and service companies were stripping costs out of the system. You'd go to the Permian or to Shreveport and talk to people, and the big discussions were around automation, what they could do to digitalize the oil field. There's a lot of talk now about the use of drones, robotics, and things like that for both uh, the cost savings and also for safety. It's dangerous working on in the oil field. And one thing that companies have been consistently highlighting are how they've absolutely crushed their well costs. Um, Sanchez, the Eagleford company that we started covering last month, is an excellent example of this. Comstock in Haynesville is another. I think across the oil field, a lot of producers have been able to almost have their lease operating expenses from where they were before the downturn. And I think what has to be borne in mind is that any increases in services costs are from an incredibly low base. The services market went from being undersupplied undersupplied during the boom years to being incredibly oversupplied almost overnight. And so we saw the likes of Basic, Keys, C&J, all energy service companies um, file for Chapter 11. They've all come out. They've restructured their balance sheet. They put a lot of gear into the yard, sold it off, scrapped it, and brought their fleets in line with actual market demand. Demand. Um, and right now, they're, I think they're being prudent about bringing new assets into the field. What I'm hearing is that a lot of the new build frac capacity is just going to be replacing existing equipment rather than adding to new fleets. Uh, that's good in a sense because the industry is not overbuilding as in the days of $100, of, of $100 oil. And there does seem to be a consistent shortage of uh, high-spec land rigs. Um, but there's a couple of interesting dynamics with the service companies, and it's the ones that uh, I'm looking at in a bit more detail. Day rates for services have not really returned to their 2014 pre-collapse levels. And because of increased efficiencies and whatnot, contracts for some services are a somewhat shorter duration. You just don't need as many days to do a job as was the case before, thanks to all the productivity and technology improvements. 
Plus, while activity is booming in the Permian and there's reports of difficulties obtaining units of various sorts, be it a rig or a frack spread, this hasn't yet translated into premium pricing. For a high-spec land rig, drilling rig, what we're hearing is a rate of maybe $21,000 a day at best, where it was $25,000 or higher, this is a day rate, in 2014. Uh, and indeed, you are hearing, or I have heard from some contacts, that there's still a decent amount of price competition among the service companies. Um, now, you know, some of this could be due to, EMP, to EMPs wanting the service companies to share the pain of the West, Coast, West Texas to Gulf Coast differentials that I mentioned before. But another thing is that the service companies are facing is a real shortage of labor. Of labor. Uh, it's incredibly tight in the Permian. Everywhere you go in Midland or Odessa, there's signs stapled to telephone poles saying drivers needed or, uh, or roughnecks needed or whatnot. Patterson UTI, which is the leader in high-spec drilling rigs, noted on its first quarter call that an increase in drilling costs during the quarter was two-thirds Two-thirds of that was due to labor shortages, and C&J mentioned on its call that it could miss some top-line numbers because of a people shortage, and that was extending its recruiting into non-traditional oil areas. So labor is going to remain a concern. Labor inflation is going to remain an issue, and if anybody listening wants to stop drafting motions or entering numbers into spreadsheet, you can always get a job driving a truck in Ector County. <laughs> we'll see if they do. Um, you know, but, but, but it's interesting, regardless of if we return... Uh, have returned back to the premium pricing, you know, whether it be on uh, the the equipment side or labor, you know, as you mentioned, you would think that as we, with the lack of capacity, as we continue, or the EMPs continue to drill more, at some point, it probably will translate into higher pricing, you, you would think. Um, you know, which brings me to my next point, which is, you know, I've been following these companies for for a number of years, a couple different cycles, and there's always been this balancing act that uh, companies try to maintain between higher production and wanting to generate cash flow. So are we at the point yet uh, where you are seeing producers cut back production or show uh, some capital discipline to maintain cash flow? Well, yeah, I think definitely with the smaller independents and especially the ones that still have somewhat constrained balance sheets, there's a real focus on capital discipline, a theme we've heard for the last year and a half or even two years is that uh, in investors will reward companies that practice capital discipline. Sanchez, of course, trimmed its CapEx for the year by about $100 million and has developed a three-year plan to live within its cash flows. And that's after the, the two large purchases in the Eagleford that we wrote about when we started coverage. Uh, and they're being helped, of course, by their low well cost. Uh, EMP Energy, another one, it's reorganized itself as an asset-focused company. It'll look at its assets across the various basins. They have some in the Permian, some in the Eagleford, and they will deploy the crews and capital where they can get the best returns, again, with a focus on capital discipline and living within their means. And, you know, like I said, that's what investors want to see, growth at a reasonable price, as it were. And one way that they're looking to do this is through joint ventures. Um, in a way, in a generic sense, the way the joint ventures work is that the JV partner will pay in a certain amount, um, say 80% to 100% of capital um, to, to a drilling program in exchange for an equivalent working interest. Once a certain um, IRR is achieved, say 15% to 20%, the working interest 
the working interest, excuse me, reverts to 5% to 25%. We've seen EP doing this. Whiting has done this. Jones, of course, has been looking to do something like this with its Cleveland asset in the Western Anadarko. California Resources does it a lot. Uh, and offshore, too. WT is working on something along those lines. And with crude prices where they are relative to, say, 2016, it's easier or quicker to hit those IRR hurdles. Thanks, Jim. I'm, I'm glad that you you know brought up EP uh, because I think that's a great example of this um, dynamic playing out between cost and, and production by basin, uh, you know, where you are seeing some potential negatives uh, because of that lack of capacity. Um, and, and EP has highlighted some of that at, in the Permian. Another company, Legacy Reserves, on their call, management talked about rising costs and essentially overcrowding in the Permian that's driving up costs. Um, and in some cases, this overcrowding is lowering production. A term that they used uh, was bashing. Um, so EP Energy, uh, of course, you know, going back to them, they have an agreement uh, that's in place with Apollo to, to drill acreage. And they recently, a couple days ago, announced um, phase two of their agreement uh, with Apollo, which um, where they plan to move production from the Permian to the Eagleford. So, you know, for other companies that 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 you see that's that's in the Permian, um, you know, with all the talk that's out there about how hot of a play it is, uh, are you actually seeing uh, some producers like EP, um, you know, shifting uh, production away and, um, you know, other, uh, other, other companies uh, completely moving out? Um, and, and in general, for the companies that are staying, how are they reacting to uh, to some of these higher costs and issues? Yeah, um, I think what they're doing, they're just being very aggressive about managing their costs. So what a lot of them are looking to do is um, do their own sourcing of sand and other things like that. So divide up the various service bits among among different vendors and hopefully getting the, the lowest price from each one. Um, the bashing that, that Legacy Resources, or, sorry, Legacy Reserves mentioned is pretty interesting. That's just uh, another and somewhat more colorful way, I guess, to describe a frack hit which is what happened when a frack stream from one well bursts into another. Um, it's, it's largely a result of tight spacing. It has to do with the, kind of the parent-child relationship between wells. I'll note that Legacy has been doing eight well pads on its Permian acreage. And when this happens, what you have to do is basically shut down and clean out the well, which means, of course, that the well isn't going to produce anymore. And there's also the risk of considerable damage to the wells as well as equipment damage. And you're seeing the frack hit phenomenon, not just in the Permian, um, but basically in every basic basin where they're doing unconventional drilling, although it's probably a bigger issue in the Permian because that's where the activity is. Most of the drilling locations are, and it's where they're doing kind of the most with testing types, tight, the tighter spacing. And it's an issue that the industry doesn't yet fully understand, but they are working on the best way to avoid or mitigate it. And, and back to E&P, um, there, there was a change in the management team last year that we that we had covered. Um, previously, they had been focused on the Permian. They made a lot about their uh, about their assets that, that targeted the Wolf Camp. Um, but the new management team, which has a, extensive experience in the Eagleford, elected to shift its efforts there as part of a plan to be an asset focused company. Uh, and, you know, this this makes sense because Eagleford Oil is exposed to Louisiana Light Suite, which, as I mentioned, is at the premium to WTI and even more to uh, and, and even more to um, to the Midland to WTI. Uh, I do note that Legacy spent a good deal of time on its call discussing the challenges of the Permian differentials. Um, and as for the equipment shortage that uh, the Legacy mentioned, 
yeah, that is definitely a thing. But for some of the service companies, a lot of the pricing gains they can maintain has to run into the wall of higher labor costs. Hmm. That's you know that, that's really interesting. That uh, a, a lot of this you know is not only due to to cost, but it's due to you know the differentials, which obviously companies have to to account for. Um, you know, you know one of, one of the reasons why I like talking about this balance between production and cash flow is because it typically ends up being a fight between management and investors. Um, and we've actually seen a, I think, a, a good number, a good increase in investor fights uh, recently. For instance, um, the industry uh, very recently uh, lost a couple of CEOs that have been um, been around for, for a while, uh, first at Ultra Petroleum, and then uh, the CEO of Jones Energy, uh, the company's namesake, uh, was also uh, forced out. Um, so, you know, Jim, what what has led to uh, to these these outstings? Uh, yeah, I think in both cases it was a matter of um, of shareholders or um, activist investors wanting a change or a shift of strategic direction. Um, Jones interest in Jones Energy is a very interesting company. Of course, Johnny Jones, a third generation oil man with uh, deep roots in the Texas Panhandle, they had managed to get through the downturn without any sort of restructuring. But still, they came out with a very heavily leveraged balance sheet and a stock that was under a lot of pressure. The company um, had bet the farm on its acquisition in the merge, which is in Oklahoma between the scoop and the stack. Um, but given capital constraints, its, plan this, its plans this year were to drill just for HBP purposes, that is, hold by production, just do enough work to ensure that they maintain their leases. And the merge is something, being an up-and-coming up play, is still very much in delineation mode meaning there's a lot of basic drilling work that has to be done to understand the geology, understand the optimal well design, the optimal spacing and whatnot. And this is something that's very capital intensive without an immediate boom, uh, without immediate boom in production or PDP. Um, with Jones, I think the problems really accelerated with their second lean deal, which I think was something they did to uh, get the capital to, to do more work on the merge. Uh, as we'd covered, the merge wasn't part of the collateral for that, for that bond. Instead, um, the collateral that was promised was going to be equity and subsidiaries that held the merge assets. Um, investors pushed back, a group formed, um, and as a result, uh, they, they changed the terms of the indenture to where the merge became part of the collateral. Um, but preceding this, of course, um, last year, Q Investments in Fort Worth and Furtree, which are both very smart shops that really know the oil field, had pushed for the company to consider its strategic alternatives. These would include a joint venture for its Cleveland asset or a possible sale of the company. Um, earlier this year, there was a change in the board composition with a partner at Q and a couple of other large shareholders joining, joining the board. Um, now, in the wake of the second lean deal, Jones's stock fell almost 50% um, to less than a dollar. Uh, we're not precisely sure what happened. The, uh, ten, the, 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 uh, the 8K announcing the management change was uh, remarkable for its terseness, but I think it's clear that the board wanted a major change in strategy and they wanted it now rather than later. And I think you can look at the relationships between some of the board members and other players within the merge and make a fairly educated guess about what might be in the offing, although we won't really know what happens. We won't know until it happens. 
Now, with Ultra, um, that was a matter of the CEO announced his retirement in January. He'd been with the, the firm for close to 30 years, I think. And there was language in the release about the new management team was going to take the company to new heights. Now, of course, uh, in the September preceding that, Firtree, also involved with uh, also involved with Jones and some other oil field names, had said it planned to engage with management to pursue value-maximizing strategies. A member of Firtree joined Ultra's board with the CEO's retirement, and Ultra announced a cooperation agreement with Firtree. So again, I think this is a matter of investors wanting to um, wanting a more immediate change in strategy than what the companies were were promising. Great, and and another type of activism, you know, we saw at Comstock. You had mentioned them in in the beginning of your comments. Um, Comstock, you. Um, you had some uh, credit activism, essentially, like to refer to, um, where you had second lien convertible holders uh, that in, in in the form of um, maturity that they, they, they laid out the, through their bonds, they essentially gave the company a deadline of 2019 to fix the company's capital structure, uh, convert uh, to equity if uh, the stock price improved, or take them out. Uh, but when equity prices didn't recover and the company, though, still tried to uh, force a convert recently, bondholders led by Knighthead fought back, um, forcing Comstock um, to to sell, to, you know, to, to essentially sell. Um, so, you know, if you could describe uh, that situation for everyone. Uh, yeah, it's um, pretty remarkable. You know, as a friend of mine said, Comstock has more lives than a cat. Um, you know, basically, uh Comstock had uh, put together a refinancing package, which included a sale of its Eagleford asset, uh, which ended up getting sold for I think 125 million plus, uh, you know, plus plus some rights related to oil wells, which was um, below the guidance they had given of around 200 million, and they'd also proposed taking out the converts uh, at a price which you know didn't really deliver par. So, um, you know, Knighthead and from what I understand, some others didn't really like the treatment that, that Comstock was proposing around the convertibles. Knighthead, of course, um, you know, had a letter, you know, released, a, published a letter which um, Comstock later responded to. Um, and I guess what happened is that Jay Allison, CEO of Comstock, got out his Rolodex and called Jerry Jones, or rather Jarrah Jones, as we say in Texas, uh, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who had committed a uh, $75 million equity investment to their uh, refinancing package. And, you know, now it looks like he is going to end up owning the majority of Comstock through his, uh, his company, Arcoma. Um, he is he is invested enough to where he's going to own 84% of Comstock, and it's going to allow Comstock to uh, retire the convertibles and the other debt that they have. And of course, uh, Legacy is another interesting situation to watch in this regard. The company's converting from a MLP to a C Corp, and there are some issues around its plan treatment of preferreds. Um, there's actually a class action in Delaware brought by an individual shareholder related to that with a hearing set for May 7th. So something to watch, and it's also going to be interesting to watch how other companies with convertibles or preferreds manage that uh, particular part of their capital structure their Haynesville knowledge to um, that different sort of basin. Um, people do agree that they're very good operators in the Haynesville. 
Thanks, Jim. Uh, certainly another uh, very interesting situation uh, that, that we'll follow along with um, you know other companies other than Legacy. Um, you know, as situations arise, we will uh, definitely be following them uh, too. So I wanted to thank you, um, Jim. Uh, as always, this has been uh, great. Thanks for taking us around um, the, um, the, the, the energy field around, uh, around the U.S. Um, appreciate it. And uh, Nick and Karen, back to you. Thanks. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.